This podcast contains explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Creepy Cannabis Podcast, where we chat all things creepy, cannabis, true crime, paranormal, and weird. I'm Madeline. I'm Rachel. And I did hit the metronome button. (laughs) I don't know why it didn't work, but I hit it. You guys don't Sometimes she likes to turn back on. Yeah, it's just no surprise to anyone I'm having technical issues. But you know what? This is probably the quickest we've ever gone online i would say so we're really progressing two years in just to clarify the way it should look is that the the box that's tracking my talking should be red correct Mm -hmm. okay perfect what are we smoking today and by we i mean madeline because i can't form a fucking thought so i won't be smoking anything (laughs) so the strain today is called grapple pie not grapple pie. Like yeah. grappling in a fight? Yeah, or like grape apple. Oh, I thought it was like grappling like MMA. <laughs> I think it's supposed was... to be, yeah. Because here, I'll let you know exactly why it's called that. Because <laughs> it's a cross between the strains apple fritter and grape gasoline. <laughs> okay, I stand corrected. So it's supposed to give you kind of an uplifting... High that settles into um, a euphoric buzz. Um, it is has a very pungent aroma, like it smells like gelato, kind of probably similar to gelato cake, the gelato cake strain, but it's very gassy and diesel-y. Um, is it weird that I like one? diesel notes? Like I feel like they no. shouldn't taste good. Sour diesel. Yeah. Sour diesel. That's a very popular strain. Um, and this one is. It's not too high of a THC percent. It's 18.97. Um, and honestly, pretty low terps in general. The highest being Myrcene, so like the more sedating and relaxing um, side of things. And then the second highest looks like Limonene. Um, so yeah. There's that. <laughs> so there's that. Um... Yeah, but it's supposed to be a very good summer strain. Um, it's a new strain for one of the producers where we are. Oh, that's cool. But um, yep, <laughs> tastes pretty good, pretty easily. So there's that. Um, anything exciting that you maybe have to share with the world? Uh, I've finally graduated. <laughs> This is this is true. I can confirm. I did see the cap and gown with <laughs> my eyes. Oh god! And my honestly, we should post an Instagram story because it's just so freaking astonishing. But my, um, like it wasn't the hood because the hood was normal. But there's like a the sash, sash, a thick sash that we got, and it literally has like the medical cross symbol and then not the just 
you know, like first aid symbol. It's but like the snake we'll one, picture. the snake and the staff. Yeah, yeah, and then a pot leaf behind it. It's like medical cannabis. It's almost like, like that's what you graduated with. Like, excuse me? It's and also, and we were at, so we're at graduation, right? And we come out, you know, the procession walks out, all the graduates, and, you know, everyone comes out and families are taking pictures, whatever. And I'm, like, posing for a picture. And all of a sudden, just the waft of pot smoke hits <laughs> me in the face. Like, people are literally smoking joints on the green. They were like, listen, it's time to get lit. We graduated. Who's the I mean, to be fair, cannabis on their sash? To be fair, it was an all-day event, and then when I got there, me and my friend, who was in my graduating class and works with me actually as well, we um, didn't realize that the morning part was, in a sense, voluntary, oh, and not no. required. So I did get there at nine a.m. That's unfortunate. And the graduation was at two thirty. Mm-hmm. But um, once we realized. <laughs> Once we realized that we could um, not necessarily, didn't have to sit through it all, we went to the parking garage, got high, and then went and got food. I mean, that's how it should be. It's the only way it should happen. Yeah. To be fair. To be fair. Um, I have exactly nothing exciting to report. Um, correct. I just am literally busy 24-7. And um, I did get such a hateful period that I actually had to cancel plans with Maddie because I thought I was going to die. So there's that, I guess. Um, welcome to being a woman in the world. Um, it's, it's really disrespectful. It's great. I didn't realize there was a tampon shortage. <laughs> um, what? Was, yeah. So it's been going on in Canada for like a hot minute. Like bitches can't get tampons. And then it's bad enough we have to pay $8 million for them. We can't even get them. Okay. But you know what always makes me sad? Because I have PCOS and I've been very open that I have I have lengthy periods. Like, it's just a fact. Do you ever see that TikTok where they're, like, singing the song, making fun of the, like, engineers or whatever that sent that chick into space and gave her a hundred Yes, with a hundred tampons. <laughs> and yeah. Like, and then the like, but will that be enough? Like, bitch, I don't know if that would be enough for me, though. We're making fun of him, but, like, legit, sir, I don't know if that would be enough for me. <laughs> so, and what if... You float off, and you're not just there for a week. Like, I don't think it oh was that wrong for him to be like, is that enough? I'd rather a man be <laughs> concerned that I don't have enough tampons than, like, not knowing what Be like, here's is. three. Yeah. I legitimately dated a kid in middle school that thought you flipped the pad over and put the tacky part on your, like, vag lips to, like, snap them closed. And that's how you <laughs> stopped your period. <laughs> I'm sorry. I will be educating the men children in my life. For sure. No. Anyway, <clears throat> this is a long one, the first part, and it took all of my strength to get through it. So, I invite you to listen to the story of the Houston mass murders and the killer known as the Candyman. Oh, not the Candyman. The Candyman can murder you. One more time, Candyman. Okay, <laughs> so. I know in my heart that every single one of you has heard, well, I want to say Urban Legend, but it's actually not. Candyland was like, or Candyland, Jesus, Candyman was just a movie, not an urban legend. So the movie shows a murdered slave man who returns from the dead in search of revenge. And if you repeat his name five times, he's coming out 
he's gonna fuck you up. Oh shit. Because he's got a score to settle. Um, good. The Candyman in today's episode has literally not a single thing to do with that. Um, however, it is just as good as that. Okay, I have. On a side uh, note, completely irrelevant to the topic for today. <laughs> I just wanted to throw in a Candyman factoid <laughs> because I love movies and he's called the Candyman. So. Fair enough. But look, I kept that one short, so you should be proud of me. Yeah. We're talking about Dean Arnold Coral. That's right. Coral! That man's name is <laughs> Coral! <laughs> what is that from? You never seen The Walking Dead? Oh. Yeah. How his name is Carl, but okay, for those of you who don't know, <laughs> in The Walking Dead, the main character's son is named Carl, but he's got a stiff southern accent, and instead he'll be like, Coral! The entire show. <laughs> Every fucking episode of that show, you hear Coral! At least one time. Dude. Honestly, I could rewatch the first episode of that show a million times because, first of all, it's an hour and a half, so it's its own movie. Correct. Like, it is a movie. It's a movie. You don't even have to watch the rest of the Correct. show. Just watch episode one. And just make And it you've had an enjoyable time. Yes. You've had an enjoyable time. I could watch Honestly, it goes downhill from there. I think season two, where they're at the farm, I could watch over and over. Yeah. On season one and two are great. And yeah. then they should have stopped. Yeah. They should have stopped. Because, let's be honest, it's. <laughs> yeah. Shit's Creek is like dumb shit. Shit's Creek to me is literally like the picture of perfection of how a show should be done. Like, and then they got out while it was the elegance, the grace, the the fucking audacity. (laughs) I love them. Anyway, I was told I need to stay on track a little bit more by my niece, and I'm going to do better this time. I think you're fine. I just want to be better. Okay. (laughs) I think it's great. (sighs) Dean Arnold. Coral <laughs> was born on December 24th, 1939 in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He was the first child of Mary Emma Robinson, not Robinson, um, who lived from 1916 to 2010. And his dad's name was Arnold Edwin Coral. I literally put in parentheses, insert walking dead joke, but I already got ahead of myself. Not laying out the jokes. Correct. I I was like, let me just make sure I get this in here. This comedic genius. This is going to hit. I'm going to make Fetch happen. So, Dean had a younger brother named Stanley Wayne Coral. Is it Coral or is it Carl? It's Coral. But in the show, his name is Carl. No, I know. It's pronounced Coral. I just wanted to make sure we're on the same page. Coral. Like, Coral without the A. (laughs) I was like, is this bit still going, or is it actually Coral? No, that's actually his name. (laughs) And as you might expect, his father was pretty strict. um, But not, like, one thing I will say about the upbringing of this character, this character, Jesus Christ, this human being. um, (laughs) One thing about him is there's nothing in his life that is like overtly what you have seen in a lot of these other stories where these killers and criminals have come from these backgrounds where you're like yeah i can totally see that like Mm -hmm. i'm not saying there's not who was it ted bundy or or um dahmer that came from a normal family like it was one of them dahmer's was relatively normal but like his mom had like a lot of mental health issues so he no, one of them had, like, a really great upbringing. I want to say it was Bundy. <clears throat> like, had a really normal, yeah. healthy... Yeah. He was like, yeah, there's nothing... So this, like, I mean, 
seems fairly similar to me. So their dad was pretty strict, but he was also drafted into the United into the United States Air Force. So like militant strict, but not like abusive from what I can tell. Um, and then their mother was like really protective. Like even though their parents ended up divorcing in 1946. She really wanted their dad in their lives, and so she went as far as relocating to Memphis, Tennessee, as he moved with the Air Force so that the kids could stay near their dad. So, like, mm-hmm. they were putting the kids first, um, and, like, there didn't seem to be any concerns there. So, when asked about Dean, he was remembered as being shy in school, not really socializing with others often, if really at all. Um it kind of was made worse because he couldn't take PE with the other kids. When he was only like seven, he had a rheumatic fever and it went undiagnosed until he was 11 years old. And as a result, he ended up getting a heart murmur from like having its underlying sickness for so long. It's, oh, Lord. Yeah. So like when I, I think I've mentioned it before, when I was 16, I got meningitis and we didn't know. And I like just laid out with it for like a month. And then I ended up getting really bad strep and it was from the meningitis just chilling in my body. So, apparently, that's a thing. So, he couldn't be in P.E. So, like, you know, he was picked on a bit. And, you know, the kids weren't super nice about it. And it wasn't very easy to make friends when everybody's, like, kind of singling you out. Um, His parents actually ended up growing closer as they were kind of overcoming all these moves and challenges and, and different things. And they ultimately decided to get back together and got married again in 1950. Which happened to be the same year that Dean's heart murmur was diagnosed. Um, It kind of was like a fresh start. They figured out what was wrong with him. The family got back together. And then they relocated to Pasadena, Texas, which is like near Houston. Um, However, despite their best efforts, his parents divorced again in 1953. But like amicably again. They just weren't meant to be married. But like were fine as people in each other's lives. Um, At that time, though, Mary did get full custody, of course, just based on their dad being in the Air Force. They need a stable parent that is there all the time. And so um, it was pretty customary in a situation like this for the mom to get full custody. Um, Mm -hmm. But again, they kept putting the boys first and they still maintain the same relationship with their dad. And none of that changed. Um, Eventually... Mary, the mom, did meet and marry a traveling clock salesman named Jack West, and they relocated to a place called uh, Vitter or Vidor, Texas. Um, and then they gave birth to Dean and Stanley's half sister, who was named Joyce uh, Janine, in 1955. Uh, by the way, that's the year of my mother's birth. Mm-hmm. For those of you who are interested, um, <laughs> this is like. This whole situation, this whole fucking story, I'm just like, what is life? So Dean's mom and stepfather started a candy company out of the garage of their house. Um, And Dean worked there before and after school pretty much all his free time because he didn't really have friends anyway. So he was like, fuck it. Um, Mm -hmm. And then his his stepdad would sell the candy along like westbound sales routes to Houston. Mm -hmm. So like I mentioned, though. By all accounts, fairly normal childhood. Um, 
high school interest. He played the trombone in the band. Like, so he did have some band friends. Um, he was a loner, but he even was noted as dating, like, a few girls. Like, he had social relationships that, like, nobody made any comments or complaints about. You know, none of the girls he dated ever had anything negative to say or anything like that. There was just nothing in this man's life that you'd be like, oh, he's going to turn into a fucking monster. You're just like, oh, he's a little shy, a little quiet. Please hold for <laughs> one second. I have a pillow, and it's like... I was sitting with her comfort, but she was up the crack. Like, yeah. all the way. It'll so, get out of hand fast. Yeah, it did, so. Um, <laughs> anyway. So, where, where was I? Oh, yeah. So, he, Dean ended up graduating high school in 1958, and again, the family relocated to the northern outskirts of Houston, um, and this is actually based on trying to grow their candy business further. Um, which they were very successful with, and they opened their storefront, which was called the Pecan Prince, which was named after their family product, which I presume was called the Pecan Prince. <laughs> um, I also could tell, by the way, that my that sounded that it's going to blow someone's eardrums out in their car, so I'm so sorry. Um, in 1960... Dean moved to Indiana to live with his widowed grandmother. His mom was actually the one who suggested it. She was worried about her and actually kind of like insisted he do it. And he did pretty well. He got pretty rooted in the community and he even met a local girl who proposed to him in 1962, but he rejected it. And while that tea is probably scorching, it's not what we're here for today, so we're going to move right <laughs> No. Uh, yep. Two years later, in 1962, <laughs> Dean relocated again to Houston Heights to help his family's candy shop at their new location. And he ended up renting the apartment that was right above the shop, which made it super easy to be there as needed to help out pretty much constantly. Um. <laughs> His mom ended up divorcing his stepdad in 1963 and opened a new candy business, which she named the Coral Candy Company. Um, at that time, Dean was appointed vice president of the new family firm, and his younger brother Stanley was appointed to secretary treasurer. The same year, one of the uh, teenage male employees of the Coral's Candy Company complained to uh, Dean's mom that her son had made sexual advances towards him. Um, she responded by firing him. And that was that. So. Great. Lovely. She said, well, that's not of interest to me. And you are. <laughs> you may saved, see your way out. She could have saved so many lives. <laughs> but okay. Yeah. Let me tell you something. I don't understand a mother's love because I love Raylan more than life itself. And if there was a justifiable kill, I'd help her bury the body. But if she hmm. just did a bad thing. My motherly love would consist, well, my godmotherly love would consist of, I will not change how much I love you through this whilst you mm-hmm. serve your time in jail. <laughs> Where you belong. You, no matter what. And I, it does not change how I view you as the person in my life. But you have to go to jail because you did something bad. So mm-hmm. I'll send you some commissary money, sis, and you can figure it out. Best wishes and warmest regards. Warmest regards. Um, <laughs> so, that happened, and then in August, well, precisely on August 10th, 1964, 
Um, Dean was drafted into the United States Army and assigned to Fort Polk, Louisiana for basic training. He was then later assigned to Fort Benning, Georgia, um, and he trained as a radio repairman before his permanent assignment to Fort Hood, Texas. So back to the home state of Texas. Um, good old Texas. Mm-hmm, good old Texas. According to his official military records, his period of service in the army was unblemished. Hmm. So as in the rest of his life, he's very, he's just there. He's just there. Um, however, he did reportedly fucking hate military service and he applied for a hardship discharge, um, on the grounds that he was needed in his family's business and they actually did grant his request and he was given an honorable discharge on June 11th, 1965 after only 10 months of serving, which I mean, if you think about it back then, like yeah, his he was a very important part of that business, and it was back when family-owned and operated businesses were, like, your entire fucking livelihood. Like, that was it. Mm-hmm. That's all they had. So they were like, all right, you can go. I don't think you guys understand the fear I have that at any moment this just isn't going to be recording properly, and I will have ruined this entire episode. Is it still recording? It appears so. Okay. But the way it's counting is weird. What do you mean? So, like, at the top, under the untitled tracks, where, mm-hmm. like, on the left, it has, like, the recording. On the right, it says, like, 628.2. Like, in red. And the numbers are counting up. It's fine. At- okay. It's fine. We're going to keep going. Sounds great. <laughs> it's reporting. <laughs> you guys are still here with us, and that's what matters. Uh, we're going to hope am. and pray. They are. They are. Listen, guys. There's a lot of things in our lives and on the horizon. And that leads me to believe we're doing an A-OK job. (laughs) It's reported that Dean divulged to some of his close friends that during his time in the army, he did realize he was a homosexual and had experienced his first homosexual encounters. Other acquaintances noted subtle changes in his mannerisms when he was around teenage boys after he had completed his service and returned to Houston, which led them to believe he may have been homosexual. It led me to believe that he may have sexually assaulted young men oh and decided that he was interested in that. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, why would you specifically be like, like, I obviously know that he always knew that, that he was homosexual. I believe that. But then all of a sudden he's just comfortable being attracted to teenage boys. Like, that came from somewhere, sir. That came from somewhere. So, following his honorable discharge, he just carried on as normal. He was the vice president of the candy company. He had to dedicate more time and hours to keep up with the growing demand, as well as the very, very spicy competition with their competitor store, the Pecan Prince. That's right. And the divorce from his mother, Jack West, retained the original storefront and a natural rivalry was born. The candy rivalry. Correct. Hence the candy man. Hmm. In 1965, the Coral Candy Company moved to 22nd Street, not 2nd 2nd Street. (laughs) 22nd Street. Guys, I'm stone cold sober. Um, Directly across from Helms Elementary School. Dean earned the names of the Candyman and the Pied Piper from locals as he had a propensity to hand out free candy to children, especially teenage boys. 
He went as far as building a pool table in the rear of his facility for local youth as well as several teenage boys he employed who he was seen being flirtatious with. So, he's now got the perfect setup. He's got the candy store. He's got the bathroom. <laughs> he's got the connections. He's got the twisted thoughts. He's locked and loaded and ready to go. The Pied Piper's on a mission. Oh, Lord. Correct. Um, so... In 1967, um, Dean befriended a 12-year-old boy named David Owen Brooks, then only a sixth-grade student and one of the many children to whom he gave free candy. David had initially become one of Dean's many youthful close companions, regularly socializing with him and various teenage boys who congregated at the rear of the candy factory exactly as he intended. He also joined Dean on the regular trips he took to South Texas beaches in the company of various other teenagers, and he later commented that Dean was the first adult male who did not mock his appearance or make fun of him and make him feel bad. So whenever David told Dean he needed cash, Dean gave him money, and David began to view Dean as like a father figure. He's taking care of him financially, which we obviously we know is grooming, but to this child this small child he's like cool i finally have a dad who like cares about me Mm -hmm. and he wants to spend time with me um eventually after dean obviously persuaded and pushed and asked for it um a sexual relationship developed between the two which began in 1969 and it consisted of Dean paying David in cash or with gifts to allow him to perform fellatio on him. Mm-hmm. So Dean was performing it on this young child. And unfortunately, David at this point is very, he had been very successfully groomed. So he's very bonded to this person and he's like wants to make him happy and doesn't really see anything like wrong per se with doing so. And that's mm-hmm. sadly how these people operate. Um, David's parents were divorced. His father lived in Houston and his mother relocated to Beaumont. Uh, it was like 85 miles east of where he was. Um, in 1970, when he was 15, he dropped out of high school and moved to Beaumont to live with his mother. But whenever he visited his dad in Houston, he also visited Dean, who allowed him to stay at his apartment if he wanted to. So he continued a sexual and physical relationship with him as he became an older teenager um, and then as he came back, he willingly went back into a relationship with him. Um, later that same year, David did move back to Houston and he later said himself that he began regarding Dean's apartment as his second home. Like he just, they were all in now. He was just kind of, it was never like a serious relationship though. It was kind of like always just like this, they were just hanging out and like would hook up and whatever. Um, by the time David dropped out of high school, uh, Dean's mom and his half-sister Joyce had moved to Colorado after a failure in her third marriage. Um, and she ultimately ended up having to close the Coral Candy Company in June of 1968. Dean and his mom spoke often, but she never actually saw him again after moving to Colorado. Um, following the closure of the candy company, he took a job... Dean did as an electrician at the Houston Lighting and Power Company, where he tested electrical relay systems, and he actually worked there until the day he died, so he kept that same job. He was a very, like, and you'll see 
as we get more into it, but he's very, like, just, I don't know, he's just very consistent. Like, he just knew what he wanted to do in life, and he's, like, very happy with the same job, very happy to be doing the shit he's up to, mm-hmm. and just, he kind of reminds me of Catherine Knight, remember that bitch at the fucking butchery shop? She just yeah. fucking loved her job. I think about her sometimes. Um, <clears throat> so, now we're gonna get into what happened, right? Like, this guy, he a little creepy, right? But just because, just because you go one way, that doesn't make you creepy. When you go one way, and you try to fuck kids, I got issues. I got yeah. issues with that. I have problems and questions. <laughs> um, they're unfortunately answered as we move forward. Great. So, Jeff, there's a lot of names. I just want to go ahead and I know we have trigger warnings everywhere, but like my man has a lot of victims. It's honestly gives me so many Dahmer vibes. And you'll see there's one thing specific to this case, which I've only ever heard of again, specifically. I'm sure it exists, but I heard of it in Dahmer's case. And it like was one mm. thing that really fucked me up about this case too. So Jeffrey Conan was an 18 year old freshman who went missing while hitchhiking on September 25th, 1970. He and another student were traveling from the University of Texas to his parents' house in Houston. Jeffrey was dropped off alone at the corner of Westheimer Road and South Boss Road near the uptown area of Houston at approximately 6.15 p.m. It is thought that Dean likely offered Jeffrey a lift to his house, which he accepted, And at the time of Jeffrey's appearance, Dean lived in an apartment on Yorktown Street, which was near the intersection with Westheimer Road. So he had access, lived nearby. Um, Upon discovery of Jeffrey's body on August 10th, 1973, it was determined that he had died of asphyxiation, uh, which for those of you who don't know, because I just realized Sean was like, he thought asphyxiation was like strangulation asphyxiation is blood loss death um that was caused by the combination of the cloth gag placed on his mouth and oh i'm wrong mm-hmm. i was about to say but why you know did i think that i don't I'm know i'm reading it i'm like asphyxiation is definitely... a, sangu- a sanguination a sanguination is blood loss and mm-hmm. that's what he was telling me about i don't know why i felt like i needed to make it a thing now but it's, it's <laughs> not correct So he did, in fact, die of a combination of a cloth gag and strangulation. Um, By the way, I did not know this, but while we're talking about strangulation, um, you are far more likely to die at the hands of a domestic intimate partner if they have ever attempted to strangle you before. Like, strangle you sexually, strangle you in a fight, put their hands around your throat. If you, that has ever happened to you in an argument with your intimate partner, it's, it's, I want to, I have to look up the numbers, but I want to say it was like something ridiculous. Like you're seven times more likely to be killed by that partner or, and by strangulation. And I had never heard that before. I'll, I'll look up the actual stats and I'll post them on our Instagram. Um, stay safe out there ladies. Cause I know we yeah. all got, we got a little kink in there sometimes, but you gotta, you gotta just know where those lines are kids. Mm. Um, Life and death. sometimes I'm like, babe, you know, like, Give me a little, you know, but I, don't, I ain't trying to die, though. A little asphyxiation, if you will. <laughs> Definitely not a sanguination in that, in that time. I was like, really? <laughs> like, I came around, guys. It's fine. Um, so anyway, that's how he had passed away. 
Um, his body was found buried beneath a large boulder covered with a layer of lime wrapped in plastic, naked, and he was bound on the hands and feet with a nylon cord, suggesting that he was tied up and sexually violated. Right around the time of his murder, David actually interrupted Dean. So David is the child that he groomed who's now 15. He interrupted Dean in the act of sexually assaulting two teenage boys um, who he had strapped to a four-poster bed. He, Dean, didn't know what to do, so he promised David a car in return for his silence, and David accepted, and so Dean bought him a green Chevrolet Corvette later to be quiet about him sexually assaulting those two boys. Um, Dean did later admit to David that he had killed the two young boys and offered him $200, which would have been the equivalent of about $1,500 as of 2023, for any boy he could lure back to Dean's apartment. And you have to remember, he's now successfully groomed this kid to the point of getting him to engage in a sexual relationship with him. Like, this kid is is all in. So, he was like, bet your ass, I'll take that $200 per. Um, so, now this poor kid, who was probably a pretty smart young boy, because he's got strong survival instincts, he's now been groomed, assaulted, and bribed into becoming an accomplice to murder. On December 13, 1970, David lured two 14-year-old Spring Branch boys named James Glass and Danny Yates away from a religious rally held in Houston Heights to Dean's apartment in Yorktown. So this is the first I could find that David deliberately lured for Dean. Um, James was an acquaintance of David who had previously visited Dean's apartment in the past. So he felt safe to go because he had already been there and nothing had happened, like nothing bad had happened. Um, both boys were ultimately tied to opposite sides of Dean's torture board, which was like, he had like a four poster bed torture board thing he would strap them to. And they were sexually assaulted, strangled, and buried in a boat shed that he had rented on November 17th. And an electrical cord with alligator clips attached to each end was buried alongside Danny's body. Presumably some type of torture, but... Uh, it's like what you would charge your car battery with. That cord that has like the two clamps with the teeth. Those are alligator mm. clamps. Oh. Yeah. Um, only six weeks after the double murder of James Glass and Danny Yates on January 30th, 71, David and Dean encountered two teenage brothers named Donald and Jerry Waldrop walking towards their parents' house. Um, they were actually driven to a friend's house by their dad and they were going there to discuss forming a bowling league and, oh, sorry, I didn't put my phone, do not disturb, oops. Um, <laughs> they were there to discuss a bowling league, but the, the people weren't home when they got there and their dad didn't wait to make sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, they started walking home because they were like, well, what the fuck, he's not there. And they were enticed into Dean's van and driven to an apartment that he rented on Magnum Road. Let me just throw on Do Not Disturb real quick. Um, and unfortunately... Wait a second. Hold on. Please hold. I got a little bit backed up. I'm holding. Yes. Sorry, I'm there. So they were <laughs> taken back to the apartment... 
And just like the previous victims, they were sexually assaulted, strangled, and buried in the boat shed. So he killed the two brothers simultaneously. So these parents lost both their kids. Then, 15-year-old Randall Harvey was last seen by his family on the afternoon of March 9th, and he was bicycling towards Oak Forest, where he worked part-time as a gas station attendant. Um, sadly, he does go on to become the next victim. He was driven again to Dean's Magnum Road apartment, where he was killed by a single gunshot wound to the head. Um, it's unclear why his death was different. I have my own suspicions that there were different MOs when it was David versus Dean. If they maybe put up a fight or they couldn't get them to comply maybe with the assault. But, like, it does seem weird to me that they would just shoot him and not assault yeah. him. Um, his next two victims were a 13-year-old boy named David Hillegest and a 16-year-old boy named Gregory Mallywinkle, who were abducted and killed together on the afternoon of May 29, 1971. Mm -hmm. Um, as you would obviously expect, both sets of the parents for both David and Gregory launched a super frantic search for their sons before their bodies were discovered. Um, at the time of his disappearance, David was friends with a 15-year-old boy named Elmer Wayne Henley. Um, Elmer voluntarily offered to distribute posters the parents had printed, offering a monetary reward for information leading to like their whereabouts. So he um, took the reward posters and pinned them all around the Heights in an attempt to reassure his, David's parents that there might be an innocent explanation for their absence. Um, Obviously, it was a different time, and it wasn't completely abnormal for young boys and girls to, like, run away, fuck around. Like, that did happen, so it, even though it's super concerning when people go missing, it wasn't completely unheard of at the time. Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot of names we're discussing, but Elmer is super important to the story in the future. So just keep David's friend Elmer, who helped with the posters, in the back of your mind. Um... On August 17th, 1971, Dean and David encountered a 17-year-old acquaintance of David named Reuben Watson Haney walking from, walking home from a movie theater in Houston. Uh, David again persuaded him to attend a party at an address that Dean had moved to on San Felipe Street the previous month, and Reuben did agree and was taken to the home where he was strangled and buried in the boat shed. Golly. Um, yeah, they, and the thing is, like, it just went... That's why I really believe that Dean was up to a lot of shit in, um, sorry, what's, I'm trying to make words. I think he was up to a lot of shit in the military because it just doesn't make mm -hmm. sense to me that he would just go from nothing to just like straight up murder like that. It's just weird. Um. Certainly strange. But anyway, so, yes, he was in the boat shed with some of the other victims and then in september of 1971 dean moved again to another apartment in the heights this was 915 columbia street um david later mentioned that he had assisted dean in the abduction and murder of two young men during the time that dean lived at this address including one boy who was killed just before elmer wayne henley came into the picture in his later confession david stated the boy um 
killed immediately prior to Elmer's involvement in the murders, was abducted from the Heights and kept alive for approximately four days before his murder. The identities of both of those victims were never identified. Um, so how exactly did this young boy who was a helpful friend of a previous murder victim become intimately involved in this guy's future violent crimes? Um, that's what I was asking myself because I was like, that doesn't seem quite right. So, um, in the winter of 1971, David introduced Elmer to Dean. It's believed that Elmer was initially intended to be the next victim in a string of senseless crimes. However, Dean evidently decided uh, that he would make a good accomplice and offered him the same fee of $200 for any boy he could lure to his apartment, informing Elmer that he was involved in a white slavery ring operating from Dallas. Okay. It was just weird to me because I don't know where that came from or why, but then the fact that he's called the Candyman and that's what the Candyman was about, I was like... Oh, that's interesting. Um, Elmer later stated that for several months he ignored Dean's offer, although he did maintain an acquaintance, like an acquaintanceship with him, and gradually began to view him as something of a brother-type person whose work ethic he admired and in whom he could confide. A brother-type person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Correct. Correct, Amundo. Um. One month later, on March 24th, 1972, the three men, David, Elmer, and Dean, encountered an 18-year-old acquaintance of Elmer's named Frank Aguirre, um, leaving a restaurant on Yale Street where he worked. Elmer called Frank over to Dean's van and invited him to drink beer and smoke marijuana with a trio at Dean's apartment. Frank agreed and followed the trio in Dean's, um, to Dean's home in his Rambler, so he drove himself. Once he was inside the house, Frank smoked weed with a trio before picking up a pair of handcuffs that Dean had left on his table. In response, when Frank picked up the handcuffs, cuffs, Dean pounced on Frank and pushed him onto the table and cuffed his hands behind his back. So, like, as soon as he saw them and was, like, picking them up, like, what the fuck are these? He was like, gotta attack. That's not right. Correct. Elmer later claimed that he had not known of Dean's true intentions towards Frank when he had persuaded his friend to accompany him to Dean's home. I personally find this hard to believe, given all the disappearances in the area, including his friends, as well as the fact that he was offered money for a service. And then the first friend you meet, he brings back to the apartment. But whatever. <laughs> um, like, what did you think he wanted him there for? Like a movie and some popcorn? The fuck? Mm-hmm. In a 2010 interview, Elmer claims to have attempted to persuade Dean not to assault and kill Frank once Dean and David had bound and gagged him. However, Dean refused, informing Elmer that he had raped, tortured, and killed the previous victim he had assisted in abducting, and that he intended to do the same with Frank. So, like I said, he basically was like, the fuck did you think was going to happen? Um, Elmer subsequently assisted Dean and David in Frank's burial at the High Islands Beach, but did not assist in the sexual assault or murder. Despite the revelation that Dean was, in reality, killing the boys he and David had assisted in abducting, Elmer became an active participant in the abductions and the murders. One well, that escalated quickly. Very quickly. The amount of things people are willing to do for 200 bucks. I mean, that's not also, a lot of money. <laughs> you're also an idiot because you're only bringing people that's you like know. That's like two cartons of eggs these days. Literally only people you know. Um, so one month later on April 20th, um, Elmer assisted Dean and David in the abduction of another boy who was named 
Mark Scott. He was 17 years old. He was very well known to both Elmer and David and was grabbed by force and fought ferociously against attempt by Dean to restrain him. He even attempted to attack his uh, or to stab his attackers with a knife. However, Mark saw Elmer pointing a pistol toward him. And according to David, Mark just gave up. So he was fighting ferociously. And as soon as he saw um, Elmer pointing a pistol at him, he was like, okay, like I'm going to die. So he just gave up. For me, I'd be like, you can fucking shoot me then. Because I don't know what you have planned for me. but <laughs> You can um, kill me now. Well, he was tied to the torture board and suffered the same fate as Frank. Rape, torture, strangulation, and burial at High Island Beach. So, this guy's just out here making a whole little cult. And it's funny because if you're like me, you might start to wonder, like, what happens if he turns on the people that are helping him? Hmm. Because that's what I was thinking. It's pretty inevitable. Yeah, it sure fucking is. Um, so, David, who is the initial young man, later stated that he felt that Elmer was especially sadistic in his participation in the murders committed at Schuller Street, and Elmer later admitted to gradually becoming fascinated with how much stamina people have when the recipient of the act of murder. So, he was just really interested in seeing, like, how much they were willing to do to not die. Jesus so. motherfucking Christ. Correct. It's crazy because, like, it's always the ones that aren't even that bloody that are, like, the worst. Ugh. Um, Before Dean vacated the address on June 26th, Elmer assisted he and David in the abduction and murder of two young boys named Billy Balch and Johnny DeLome. In David's confession, he stated that both boys were tied to Dean's bed and, after their torture and rape, Elmer manually strangled Billy, then shouted, Hey, Johnny, and shot Billy in the forehead with the bullet exiting through his ear. Johnny then pleaded with Elmer, Wayne, please don't, because he, he went by Wayne in the community with his friends, by the way. Um, Wayne, please don't, before he was strangled. Both boys were buried at High Island Beach. So he didn't want his one friend, Frank, to be killed, but he had no problem literally calling somebody to look at him while he shot another kid in the face and then strangled him to death. So what there's the that. Fuck? Correct. Um, during the time Dean resided at Schuller Street, the trio lured a 19-year-old named William Rittinger to the house. William was tied to the plywood board, tortured and abused by Dean. David later claimed he persuaded Dean to allow William to be released, and he was actually allowed to re- uh, leave the residence. Don't know why. Same thing with, like, uh, Dahmer. I think, didn't he let, like, one or two people dip? Mm. I don't remember. I think they escaped. Mm. On another occasion, during the time they resided there, Elmer knocked David unconscious as he entered the house. Dean then tied David to his bed and assaulted him repeatedly before releasing him. Despite that assault, David continued to assist Dean in the abductions of the victims. I do unfortunately feel that David is also a victim and that he could have turned out different in better circumstances. Like, I... Look, I get it. He agreed to take the money. But you have to remember, he started off as a sixth grade child who was sexually groomed and abused for years and years. So I'm not excusing his actions, but I do think he was more of a victim accomplice than somebody like Elmer who just came in and was like, yeah, I feel like fucking killing people. Because like David, yes, like he lures people, but he always takes a very passive approach to his crimes, if that makes sense. 
Well, for the most part. Um, anyway, where did I just leave off? After vacating um, the Shoulder Street residence, Dean moved to an apartment at Westcott Towers, where in the summer of 1972, he is known to have killed a further two victims. The first of these victims, 17-year-old Stephen Sickman, was last seen leaving a party held in the Heights shortly before midnight on July 19th. He was savagely bludgeoned um, in the chest with a blunt instrument before he was strangled and buried in the boat shed. I, I feel like people who fought got like different like when they couldn't handle it like or the person resisted too much that's when they kind of just like went for the kill like if they couldn't get them to comply in some cases because like there's really no explanation as to what is going on here um that's not great correct approximately one month later on around august 21st a 19-year-old bo- uh, boy named Roy Button was abducted while working, I'm sorry, while walking to his job as an assistant in Houston in a shoe store. He was gagged with a section of Turkish towel and his mouth was bound with, with adhesive tape. He was shot twice in the head and buried in the boat shed. Um, neither of these boys were, were named by David or Elmer um, as being a victim of Dean and both weren't identified as victims until 2011. So I'm thinking that maybe he... Dean did those on his own. I'm sure there were times in which he didn't have them participate because they couldn't recall every victim. Weird. Um, I would love to say it gets better, but we're on only page 8 of 12. Okay. Yeah, and we're talking about just straight up all his murders. Um, so if you guys are here for for the long haul, I got you. Oh my god. I got you. <laughs> um, on October 2nd, 1972... Elmer and David encountered two Heights teenagers named Wally J. Simino and Richard Hambry, or I'm sorry, Hembry, walking to Richard's house. Wally and Richard were enticed into Elmer's Corvette and driven to Dean's Westcott Towers apartment. That evening, Wally is known to have called his mom and to have shouted the word mama into the receiver before the connection no. was terminated. Correct. No. Mm-hmm. The following morning, Richard was accidentally shot in the mouth by Elmer with the bullet exiting through his neck. Several hours later, so he lived, by the way, several hours later, both boys were strangled to death and subsequently buried in a common grave inside the boat shed directly above the bodies of James Glass and Danny Yates. So he shot this man in the face, in the mouth, through his neck, and then he got to chill there for a few hours before he was strangled. Oh, that's ungodly. Correct. Um, sometime the following month, an 18-year-old Oak Forest boy known to both Dean and Elmer named Willard Branch disappeared while hitchhiking from Mount Pleasant to Houston. His gagged and emasculated body was buried in the boat shed. They're so <laughs> all over the place, too. On November 15th, a 19-year-old Heights boy named Richard Kepner disappeared on his way to a phone booth Richard was strangled to death and buried at High Island Beach. Altogether, at least 10 teenagers between the ages of 13 and 19 were murdered between February and November of 1972, five of whom were buried at High Island Beach and five inside the boat shed. On January 20th, 1973, Dean uh, Dean moved to an address on Wirt Road in the Spring Branch District of Houston. 
and within two weeks of moving to that address, he had already killed 17-year-old Joseph Lyles. Uh, he was also known to both Dean and David and had lived on Anton Drive, which is the same street where David lived in 1973. So he knew him from the past. On March 7th, Dean vacated his Wirt Road apartment and moved to 2020 Lamar Avenue, I'm sorry, Lamar Drive, um, which is an address his father had previously uh, vacated in the Pasadena area. No known victims were killed between February 1st and June 4th of 1973. However, Dean is known to have suffered from a uh, hydra cell in early 1973, which could have contributed to this period of inactivity. And for those of you like me who don't know what the fuck a hydrocell is, <laughs> it's a fluid-filled sac around one testicle. Ew. On it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Causing uh, one of his, uh, his hanglows there to be abnormally large. Ew. I know. I know. No. I mean, you don't know things will gross you out, and you take for granted having a partner with perfectly proportionate testes. No, sack of nuts. Um, I did tell Sean I will never take him for granted again. Um, <laughs> thank you for being proportionate, my guy. Oh, so, Lord. He was not trying to have anybody see that. So he probably wasn't trying to do any sexual assault with a fucking distended ass, big ass boy. No. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> like, I wouldn't exactly be fucking bragging about that shit. He probably had a fucking STD from just savaging sexually assaulting everyone on the earth. Probably. Um, anyway, so he was not trying to have anybody see that, like I said. And in addition, around the time of Joseph's murder, Elmer had temporarily moved away to Mount Pleasant in an apparent effort to distance himself from Dean. Uh, we can't know for sure, but it's very plausible that this is why he did have a break at this time. Because he didn't have one of his accomplices and he had a fat ass ball. Unfortunately, though, from June, Dean's kill rate increased dramatically, and both Elmer and David later testified to um, the increase in the level of brutality of the murders committed while Dean had lived specifically at Lamar Drive. Hmm. Elmer later compared the acceleration in the frequency of killings and the increase in the brutality exhibited by Dean towards his victims to being like a bloodlust adding that he and David would instinctively know when Dean was to announce that he needed a new boy due to the fact that he would appear restless, smoking cigarettes, and making reflex movements. So he would, like, literally fucking crack out over wanting to sexually assault and murder people. And both Elmer and Dean could tell because he would get, like, really volatile towards them. And at this point, like... Elmer sounds like a real fucking sicko, but like I said, I I don't know. Something about me just still empathizes a little bit with David. Um, So, on June 4th, yes, June 4th, Elmer and Dean abducted 15-year-old William Ray Lawrence. Um, He was last seen alive by his father on 31st Street. After three days of abuse and torture, William was strangled before being buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. Less than two weeks later, 20-year-old Raymond Stanley Blackburn was abducted, strangled, and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn as well. On July 6, 1973, Elmer began attending classes at the Coach's Driving School in um, Bel Air, where he became acquainted with 15-year-old Homer Louis Gar- Louise Garcia. Um, the following day, Louise called his mother to say he was spending the night with a friend. 
He was sadly shot and left to bleed to death in Dean's bathtub before he was buried at Lake Sam Rayburn as well. Then only five days later, so you can see this rapid escalation. It went from once a month here or there to, like, weekly. Um, on <laughs> July 12th, the day after the day of my birth, not everything's about me, I'm sorry. 17-year-old <laughs> John Sellers of Orange County was bound, shot to death, and buried at High Islands Beach. In July 1973, after David married his pregnant fiance, yes, I was also shocked. Okay. Elmer's, mm-hmm. Elmer Temp, and that's the only thing I found on it. Was With hydrocell? No, no, that was Dean. Dean's the one with the oh, fuck. David was the, the, victim, the child victim. That's right. Elmer tempor- temporarily became Dean's sole procurer of victims. So Elmer was the sicko who shot the guy in the mouth. Assisting in the abduction and murder of three Heights boys between July 19th and the 25th. So, yes, David had a whole ass family on top of his bizarre fucking throttle couple situation. Um, Elmer claimed that these three abductions were the only three that had occurred after his becoming an accomplice to Dean in which David was not a um, participant. So these three, he admits, were only he and Dean, but that those are the only three that were just those two. Hmm. One of the three victims, 15-year-old Michael Balch, was a brother of previous victim Billy Balch. He was last seen by his family on July 19th on his way to get a haircut, and he was strangled and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. So just like in Dahmer's case, two brothers killed by the same serial killer separately in the same way. Hmm. Which is fucking wild to me. How do you have one whole child get abducted and murdered and then your other child is just walking casually to get a haircut? You will literally be taking a balloon that I have curated for you for the rest of your life. I get it. It's a different time. But yes, he killed. And then he also killed that pair of brothers that he abducted together previously. Mm-mm. Um, Yeah. I just, I don't know. I, that breaks my heart for the parents. Like, That's how awful. do you, how do you like, I don't know. I don't know. You don't. You don't. Correct. Um, so, yes. The other two victims were Charles Cobble and Marty Ray Jones. And they were abducted together on the afternoon of July 25th. Um, Elmer himself later buried both boys' bodies in the boat shed. On August 3rd, 1973, Dean killed his last victim, who was a 13-year-old boy from South Houston named James Stanton uh, Dramala. James was abducted by David and Dean while riding his bike in Pasadena and driven to Lamar Drive upon the pretense of collecting empty glass bottles to resell. Which makes me sad because, like, the other guys at least, like, knew they were going there for drinks and a good time. This kid was just like, yeah, I gotta sell some bottles because he's a fucking baby. Um, at Dean's home, James was sadly tied to the torture bed. He was assaulted like the others, tortured and strangled with a cord before being buried in the boat shed. David later described James as a small blind boy for who he had bought a pizza and in whose company he had spent 45 minutes before the boy was attacked. So he had bought him a pizza and was hanging out with him for a while before he was attacked. Hmm. Correct. I want you to remember how young the these accomplices are because on the evening of August 7th, 1973, Elmer, who was now 17, mm-hmm. so they, these were children when they were helping him. Like, as sick as Elmer was, he was also just a kid. Like, a kid. A fucking child. 
Um, he invited 19-year-old Timothy Cordell Curley to attend a party at Dean's Pasadena residence. Timothy was a casual acquaintance of Dean's, actually, who was intended to be his next victim. So he was an acquaintance of the killer, like, wasn't actually one of their friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, he accepted the offer, and David was not present at this time. The two boys arrived at Dean's house where they sniffed paint fumes and drank alcohol until midnight before leaving the house, promising to return shortly. Um, Elmer and Timothy then drove back to Houston Heights and Timothy parked his vehicle close to Elmer's house. The two exited the vehicle and Elmer heard a commotion across the street coming from the house of 15-year-old Rhonda Lewis or Louise Williams, who is actually a friend of Elmer's. So at this point, Elmer's already friends with Rhonda, and he's actually kind of becoming friends with Timothy, like, throughout the night of hanging out and whatever. And um, they start going over to her house, because he's like, hey, my friend lives over there. Like, apparently he gives a shit about some people. Um, So when they got there, um, Rhonda wasn't doing well. She had a sprained ankle. Uh, She had unfortunately been beaten by her drunken father and was just trying to take care of herself. Um, and then they were like, hey, come with us, get in the car, like, you don't have to be here for this. And Elmer was actually trying to be nice to her, like, he was trying to help her get away from her dad. Um, so she got in the backseat of Timothy's Volkswagen, and they went back to Dean's house in Pasadena. At approximately 3 a.m., so clearly in this situation, Elmer did not intend for them to die that evening, like, for his two friends. Um... So, it's 3 a.m. on the morning of August 8th, 1973, and then Elmer and Timothy, accompanied by Rhonda, get back to Dean's house. Dean was immediately fucking pissed that Elmer brought a girl to his house, like, telling him in private that he had ruined everything. Um, Elmer tried to explain that Rhonda had argued with her dad that evening and didn't want to go home and that she was just a friend. Like, in his mind, like, it was never a consideration that anything was going to happen to them he was like yeah I just brought her back here we're just hanging out um so I don't know it was kind of weird he was like you ruined everything Elmer explained and then Elmer kind of calmed down um and so did Dean and then Dean ultimately offered them beer and marijuana they started drinking smoking having a good time and then Elmer and Timothy were sniffing the paint fumes But Dean just sat there watching them, like, super intently for, like, two hours, just watching them while they were all partaking. Um, And he waited for them to pass out. So after they pass out, Elmer wakes up, and he's laying on his stomach, and Dean is snapping handcuffs to his wrists. Um, His mouth had already been taped shut. His ankles had been tied together, and Timothy and Rhonda were beside him, securely tied with nylon, nylon rope. They were gagged with tape, and they were also face down, and Timothy was naked. So, they all passed out, they wake up, and now Elmer's fucked, too, because he done pissed Dean all the way off bringing that girl back to his house, because that just wasn't something he was sexually interested in. Oh. Um, Dean noticed that Elmer woke up, and he removed the gag from his mouth, and Elmer started to protest in vain against his actions, um, and Dean was like, no, I'm angry with you for bringing a girl into my house. And he was like, I'm going to kill you guys. Um, And he said that 
he was going to kill all three of them after torturing Timothy and then looked at um, Elmer and was like, man, you blew it bringing that girl before shouting, I'm going to kill you all. But first, I'm going to have my fun. And I can't really feel that bad for Elmer because now he's on the receiving end of what he's been doing to all these people. Um, he repeatedly kicked Rhonda in the chest before um, lifting Elmer to his feet and dragging him to his kitchen, placing a 22 caliber uh, caliber pistol against his stomach and threatening to shoot him. Somehow, mm. Elmer did calm Dean, promising to participate in the torture and murder of both Rhonda and Timothy if he released him, apologizing. He was like, I'm sorry that I made an excuse for her. Like, got it. Mm. Um, after approximately 30 minutes of them going back and forth, Dean agreed and untied Elmer and carried Timothy, Timothy and Rhonda to his bedroom and tied them to opposite sides of the torture board. Timothy was on his stomach and Rhonda was on her back. Um... Dean actually gave Elmer a hunting knife and said, cut away Rhonda's clothes, insisting that while he would rape and kill Timothy, that Elmer would do likewise to Rhonda for pissing him off and bringing her to the house. So he was like, you're going to have to rape and kill your friend for bringing her into my house. Um, so Elmer did begin cutting away Rhonda's clothes as Dean undressed and began to sexually assault and torture Timothy. Both Timothy and Rhonda had actually been unconscious this entire time and actually woke up as they were being assaulted. Um, Timothy began, like, fighting and yelling, and Rhonda, um, Elmer had actually removed her gag. She lifted her head, looked at him, and said, is this for real? He said, yes, and she said, are you going to do anything about it? Like, dead ass. She just, she didn't scream. She just looked at him and said, are you going to do anything about it? And he was like... Hmm. Like, she was the first person to be like, what the fuck is going on here? So, Elmer then oh asked God. Dean, yeah, I know. Elmer asked Dean at this point if he could take Rhonda into another room. Dean ignored him. And then, out of nowhere, Elmer grabs Dean's pistol, shouting, You've gone far enough, Dean. As Dean hurried up and got off of Timothy, like, doing what he was doing, Elmer elaborated, I can't go on any longer. I can't have you kill all my friends. So it becomes apparent that while Elmer was originally fascinated with everything, he's like, this man is really fucking cleaning house and killing all of my friends. Mm -hmm. Shocker. Yeah, that's um, what happens. Dean actually approached Elmer at this point and said, kill me, Wayne. Elmer stepped back a few um, paces as Dean continued to advance upon him, shouting, you won't do it. And Elmer did ultimately fire at Dean, hitting him in the forehead. The bullet failed to penetrate Dean's skull, and he continued to come towards Elmer. At that point, he was like, fuck it, and fired another two rounds, hitting him in the left shoulder. Um, Dean then ran out of the room, hitting the wall of the hallway, and Elmer fired three additional bullets into his lower back and shoulder. And then he mm -hmm. kind of slid down the wall in the hallway outside the room where the two teenagers were currently bound. And he literally died, like, where he fell, like, naked on the floor. Um, unfortunately, I did see that as well. But he was, he was like, on his stomach, so, like, all you could see was, like, his back and, like, the fetal position. Mm -hmm. But you could see he, like, hit the wall and, like, slid down and just, like, crumpled and died. That's really unfortunate. Excuse me for not feeling bad for him. Um, Elmer would later recall that immediately after he shot Dean, the sole thought in his mind was that Dean would have been proud of the way he had behaved during the confrontation, adding that Dean had been training him to react quickly and forcefully and that this was exactly what he had done. So essentially, mm -hmm. that guy trained him how to kill him on accident. 
<laughs> After he had shot Dean, Elmer released Timothy and Rhonda from the torture board, and all three teenagers dressed and discussed what actions they should take. Elmer suggested to the others that they should simply leave, to which Timothy replied, no, we should call the police. Elmer ultimately agreed and looked up the number for the Pasadena Police Department or the PPD in Dean's telephone directory. Because back then, you mm -mm. had to do that. At 824 a.m. on August 8th, 1973, Elmer placed a call to the PPD. His call was answered by an operator named Velma Lines. In his call, Elmer blurted to the operator, Y'all better come here right now. I just killed a man. Elmer gave the address to the operator as 2020 Lamar Drive, Pasadena. As Timothy, Rhonda, and Elmer waited upon Dean's porch for the police to arrive, Elmer mentioned to Timothy that he had done that, killed by shooting, four or five times. So he was like, yeah, Timothy, I've killed people with a gun four or five times. Weird flex, but okay. Um, okay. Minutes later, a PPD... A uh, patrol car arrived at the address and the three teenagers were sitting on the porch outside the house and the officer noted the 22 caliber pistol on the driveway near the trio. Elmer told the officer that he was the individual who had made the call and indicated that Dean's body was inside the house. Um, after confiscating the pistol and placing the three inside the patrol car, the officer entered the bungalow and discovered Dean's body inside the hallway. Um, he returned to the car and read Elmer his Miranda rights, and in response, Elmer shouted, I don't care who knows about it. I have to get it off my chest. Timothy later told detectives that before the police officer had arrived at Lamar Drive, Elmer had informed him, if you wasn't my friend, I could have gotten $200 for you. Oh my golly. Like, my man has just been sexually assaulted and thought he was going to die, like... I don't think he needs to hear that shit. He really doesn't. So that's the entire situation. Then mm. we need to go into the discovery of all these bodies, the trial, the situation, <laughs> all that. But it was just too much to do in Oof. one episode. So it's going to have mm -hmm. to be a two-parter. It's yes, going to have to be a is. numero dos. Uh, mm -hmm. I appreciate all of your time. Um, bye. And consideration. Thank you. And, and goodbye. Goodbye.